Hello, everybody. Episode 14 of the Attractions Group podcast. I'm Don Helbig, joined by Ryan Sir. And Ryan, we are in the middle of the Halloween season, one of my favorite times of the year to go to different parks throughout the industry. Do you enjoy this time of the year? You know what I do? Um, I'm not a huge uh, Halloween guy. Like, I know there are some people that count down the days to Halloween starting in, you know, November 1 or whatever. That's not me. But when it comes to October, late September, man, I get into the season like anybody else. How about you? Yeah, I mean, same thing here. I mean, I always like seeing the different, um, you know, seasons at the parks. You know, I like the spring when everything, you know, is starting to bloom in that. I like the summer months, a lot of festivals and different things take place. At uh, those times, and uh, then you get into the fall. It's the Halloween season, and then you have those winter events. So, uh, yeah, I mean, for me, I just like to see it. Uh, you know, those, that over those four quarters, just the different things that happen throughout the industry. Yeah. So, well, as we alluded to, the subject for today's episode is very appropriately Halloween season in the theme park industry. This is episode fourteen. It should have been episode thirteen. We ended up having Taylor from. Coaster Studios on last week, which totally screwed up our schedule because how appropriate would it be to be episode 13 in Halloween? But that's neither here nor there. So really excited. We just got to be smarter about this, Ryan. We just got to be a little bit smarter with our content calendar and look at the number and see if there's any kind of thing we can tie into. We just, we just I know uh, it's just both it of us being marketing people should have gotten that. And mm-hmm. but you know we've got all those lobbyists and investors pulling us in different directions. And you know you got your Halloween people and your Coaster Studios people trying to lobby for the next episode. So that's neither here nor there. So Don, let's uh, let's talk about. Um, you know, Halloween, obviously, you know, the roots trace back for centuries. So that's not really what we're getting into here. Um, the Halloween in the theme park industry is generally accepted to have started with Knott's Berry Farm. Um, but I would say that uh, the true origins for, for a widespread standpoint go around the year 2000 or so. Uh, and that's when you saw yeah. a lot of the parks adding, uh, adding Halloween events. Um how do you think that it's evolved since that time between 2000 and 2022, a little over 20 years? What do you think the difference is now? Well, I think when it first started, what you, you know, the parks were looking at was just a way to extend the season a little bit longer into October. A lot of parks, you know, they would typically shut down right after Labor Day. Uh, so it was a way to just add some additional dates there. Added value for pass holders was another reason uh, to do it. Uh, but, you know, around, uh, you know, 2005, 2007 type range, the Halloween season really took an uptick, uh, you know, throughout the country. And it just became, you know, retail, uh, you know, everything involved with Halloween. It just became a big, big, um, you know, business, one of the busiest times of the year for everybody. And, uh, you know, it evolved from there from something that you were just really doing to just, uh, you know, extend the calendar a little bit and have some added value to, uh, now it's very much a part of every park's marketing plan. Yeah, it's funny. I, I, you know, been fortunate over the past five or so years to really develop uh, a relationship with a guy named Bill Balfour, who we both know, uh, that was responsible for bringing what they called Fear Fest to the Paramount Parks in 2000. And uh, he described to me what a scramble it was. Uh, for Kings Island particularly, he said that he either rent or purchased most items from, uh, I think he called it uh, Madison Scare Gardens. Uh, so that yeah. all of it was secondhand originally mm-hmm. uh, because they didn't have time to develop it, nor did they have anybody to develop it. Um, and then, uh, you know, they got John Hawkins, who later went on to own Oak Island Creative, uh, ended up designing a bunch of stuff for them. So that's really cool. Uh, and then obviously um, it's separated out. So in a lot of cases, you know, a lot of it was third party because they just didn't have a person. But now almost a lot of parks have dedicated teams that handle this sort of thing. Would you agree with that? Uh, they do. I mean, there is a team, you know, at most most parks and that's what they focus on. You know, it's almost become like a year round, uh, you know, job planning for that event. Uh, you need a big team to put it together. Uh, you know, I can remember, you know, the early years, you know, early 2000s when I would go to different parks to experience the Halloween events, you know, wanting to see the park in a different light at those times or dark, you could say. But uh uh, you know, there wasn't uh, a lot going on. I mean, there might be three, four haunted, what they would call attractions, you know, mazes that uh, you would go through and, you know, maybe a couple of rides. Uh, you didn't really have the the scare actors roaming the midways or anything like that. You didn't have uh, the Halloween themed uh, live entertainment shows. Uh, so it was almost just kind of, you know, just trying to, to see what's going to work, you know, what things would uh, guests want to see and just kind of evolve from there and really around, you know, the mid 
uh, early 2000s, 2005, 6, 7, you know, that's when it really exploded uh, throughout the attractions industry. Yeah. And it's funny because uh, any park uh, really has uh, a successful Halloween event, a night event. It's you can basically open the doors and people will come. But most recently, um, in the past like five or so years, it seems like the daytime family oriented stuff has become a huge part of it as well. In fact, um, I'm going to pull up on Twitter. I actually asked our users what the future of Haunt is. Um, and it was kind of a, an interesting reaction because I figure, given the demographics we have right now, they'd be like, you know, it's uh, it's going to be more scary. It's going to be more extreme. But this is the breakdown. So 12% thought that the future of Halloween at theme parks is going to be more scary and edgy. 24% thought it was going to be more family friendly and 64% thought it was a mixture of both. So that implies to me, the way that I interpret it is fun by day, fright by night, as many parks market it. But the, at night, when you open the gates, I mean, it, it's a matter of where do you want to close a spigot because there's so many people. During the day, it's becoming like that too. Very, very popular with the costume contests and so on. What, what do you think you attribute that to, um, especially in the past five or so years where it's taken off? Well, like I said, it's become... Um you know, just a huge, huge event, uh, you know, Halloween, you know, before you had, you know, Thanksgiving, Christmas, New Year's, 4th of July, that's what everybody thought about. Well, now Halloween's in that same, you know, grouping for what people like to do. You know, the adults like to go to the hollow, you know, Halloween parties at work, Halloween parties with their friends, uh, kids, the same thing, you know, you're having all these different, uh, you know, Halloween activities and things at schools. Uh, so it's just really become a way of life with people. You know, it's just something that you do along with those other holidays that are out there that you look forward to every year. Uh, so it just kind of evolved from that. But, you know, everybody's involved, uh, Ryan, you know, so it's not just, uh, you know, the scare seekers that, uh, you know, like this event, uh, you know, the Halloween season, but it's also, you know, the families, the parents of the young children, they like to take uh, kids trick or treating and, uh, you know, when you, when you look at, uh, you know, the attractions industry and they have these different uh, events where, you know, kids can go trick-or-treating and that, uh, you know, that's in a, in a very, you know, controlled, uh, you know, type of environment. And it, it's kind of more fun than just taking them through neighborhoods. Yeah, I agree with that. And I feel like there's a lot more to work with, too, um, because you there's trick-or-treating or trunk-or-treating in parts of the country. And it seems like most parks do that. And, the, and some of them do it better than others. Um but you can also, uh, kids don't understand this, but there's the harvest aspect. That's where the corn and stuff comes through. And that's why there's a lot of tractors and stuff like that. So I feel like maybe there's a lot to do. So there, that creates an attractiveness um, with the kids and stuff. Um, let me ask you this. Though. So as far as nighttime haunts, like the, the scary adult stuff, right? So especially being in Ohio as you are, and I'm close to Ohio for those of you paying attention at home. Um, Ohio is one of the number one places for not just haunted houses, but nationally ranked haunted houses. In the Cincinnati area alone, there's Land of Illusion, which is like five houses and it's its own complex. Uh, and there's a dense schoolhouse, which is nationally ranked as one of the scariest haunted houses in the United States. How do you set your event apart? How do you make it just not another Halloween event? Well, you have different, uh, you know, things going on besides just the, you know, that those are like, like you said, the, the, the schoolhouses and those kind of things are, you know, basically one, you know, one experience where in the attractions industry, the theme park industry, you have, um, you know, whether you're open five, six, seven hours, whatever your time frame is for those events, um, it's an immersive experience. You know, you have other things besides the, the scare uh, mazes, the scare zones, the live entertainment. You have, you know, oftentimes rides are, are uh, uh, a big part of that experience. Uh, everyone loves night rides. You know, what better time to do it in the fall? Um, you know, when the parks are open longer, uh, into the, into the night and, uh, you know, you have, uh, you know, the culinary experience during the Halloween season, you know, you see a lot of those, uh, seasonal, uh, favorites, you know, coming onto the menu and things like that. So it's just a more immersive, uh, experience, uh, for everybody than just going to one of those, um, you know, standalone type haunted attractions when you're, when you're looking at what, what we do here in this industry. Yeah, I completely agree. In fact, um, you know, comparing just the two examples that I gave you, uh, between Dent Schoolhouse and Land of Illusion, um, Land of Illusion, like I mentioned, is like five haunted houses and they've got this big camp where there's a campfire. They often have live bands. They've got wrestling on certain nights. They've got a DJ, they, all sorts of stuff. So you can make a night out of it. And I think that that's very both attractive and marketable because if you go through a haunted house, you pay 20 or 
gosh, sometimes 30 or $40 nowadays. Uh, and it takes you 25 minutes, 45 minutes for a good one to get through it. And then what do you do for the rest of the night? You know, but with a theme park, you can occupy your whole time. And I think it even has kind of a broader appeal. Very few people don't go because they don't like haunted houses, because they know they don't have to do haunted houses. Now, I know most par parks are marketing the no boon necklace and you know different iterations of that, but I think that a lot of people that just aren't particularly fond of haunted houses um, will go for the, the night rides. I think night rides are a very marketable and a very well-liked thing, even outside of the enthusiast communities. So I think you really hit the nail on the head with that. Would you agree? Yeah. Yeah. That's a big part of it. And, you know, and just atmosphere, you know, you, you mentioned a lot of people, you know, maybe they don't like going through the, the haunted mazes, but they do like the atmosphere. They like watching other people, you know, get scared and you can see that on the midways, you know, you can just, uh, you know, if you're into people watching that and just kind of watch, uh, you know, people getting scared as the the creatures come out from behind trees and buildings and you know pop out behind trash cans things like that so that's a lot of fun too so it's uh you know it's just a great night event halloween season no matter how you want to experience it yeah yeah i completely agree um i think there's a lot of fun to be had um i mean personally you know being a 39 year old man i don't really have the the jump scare i mean occasionally you know somebody gets me or whatever in a maze but i think the attraction for me is just really appreciating a haunted house as a work of art um knowing that there was a human hands on this like that designed it and created it and stuff um but to me i think the most impactful mazes shows and um i guess scare zones too is the ones that tell a story um because you can mm -hmm. do a circus you can do a corn maze or whatever um, you're involved in one with an, with an abandoned hotel, which I think is a great story. Uh, what do you think that the, um, the storyline aspect, what, what do you, what factor do you think that plays in everything? Well, I think it plays the same way as, as putting in a new, you know, new rides, uh, today. Uh, you know, you, people like that, that uh, story driven attraction, uh, with it. So it's kind of, uh, you know, immersive. So you're, as you're going through, uh, you know, the, the, the cue in that for rides, you know, there's a story to it uh, before you get to actually ride the ride. So it's the same way with these Halloween uh, mazes where there's a backstory to it. You know that story before you enter the maze. And, and I think that really enhances the experience. For I you. completely agree, you know, and I think that um, but the thing that really attracts me to uh, like haunts, like live shows is that they, they tell a story. Oftentimes they have a storyline because, you know, I can see a musical review anywhere. I can, you know, snapping to the 60s or whatever. But when you have me in a story for 25 minutes and, you know, sometimes it's got some good shock value and stuff. I think that's like the coolest thing ever. Um, so, Don, when, when we're talking about, um, you know, choosing how far to go in a Halloween situation... Um, cause I remember there was a marketing of no one and nothing is off limits. Uh, I feel as though most parks, most chains do not feel that way anymore. Where do you draw the line between fun and gory and distasteful? Like we're, we're I, mean, I know you can't well, speak on behalf of everybody, but in your opinion, in your observation. Well, I, I just think, you know, the industry as a whole, I think, you know, as, as everyone was getting into these Halloween events, you know, you had to kind of find your way, you know, what's going to work with your audience and, you know, you know who your guests are, but, you know, it's, it's maybe something that, you know, if you're about families and that, they're not going to always like the blood, terror and the gore, that kind of thing. Uh, so I, I think as Parks, you know, got into this, uh, sometimes it was more about the um, the quantity, you know, just, just throwing things everywhere around the park to try to dress it up for Halloween. To now when you go uh, to parks throughout the country, you know, you might not see as much, um, you know, out there in the park as far as all the decoration that go but what is out there is is a much much uh, more polished uh you know a better presentation with the decor than than we've ever seen in the industry i think a lot of parks they, they do it so well now and that's a part of the allure too for for uh, guests that come to the park you know especially during the daytime they like to walk around and look at all the, the different uh you know things that are out on display and you get to see the park in a different uh, you know different way with that and then at night it kind of takes on its own personality and that uh, there, but I think you know you started out, you know, in in this, uh, you know, everybody's getting involved and you know jumping in and not really knowing what they have and they're trying different things and it starts to be you know trying to be over the top and edgy and shock value and then you find uh, you find your way and I think you know that's kind of it's evolved over the years uh, to what you're seeing today and 
um, you know, some really like that, you know, intense type of an event, um, but maybe for certain parks, it didn't work, you know, that well with their audience, their market. Uh, so they, you know, changed it up to make it, uh, you know, what's going to be successful for them today. So, you know, you know, sometimes you'll hear, why isn't it like, uh, you know, let's point out universal, you know, they do a phenomenal job and, um, but not everybody can be that. And it's a different type of audience going there. It's not the locals, you know, you're, you're planning six, eight, 10 months out, uh, to go experience that event, you know, and you're coming from all over the country to do it, uh, where like a park in the Midwest, um, you know, East coast, that's not the case. You know, you're, you're coming from, you know, 30 minutes to an hour away to go there. And it's a lot of times, and it's a season pass holder who's been to your park 10, 15 times during the year. And, you know, they might not like that, you know, they might still want to have a lot of the the things that they're accustomed to, you know, with the rides and uh, shows and, you know, different things like that. So, I think you just have to find out, uh, you know, and it takes time. It takes years to figure out what's the best, uh, you know, way to go uh, for your particular market. Yeah, I agree. Um, you know, and and you brought up Universal, and I think that's an interesting uh, case study uh, because, you know, anytime I, you know, I've told anybody, well, not anybody, this is the very anecdotal, but, you know, I mentioned like, oh, Haunt is really good this year. They're like, yeah, but it sucks compared to you know, Halloween Horror Nights. And it's, you just want to slap him in the face because Halloween Horror Nights, not even for the reasons you listed, I feel like it's a completely different product because I think they're going for something else because I feel like the average haunt, whether it's Cedar Fair, Six Flags, uh, even like SeaWorld, um, is about, you know, the environment and the startles and the jump scares and stuff like that. While Horror Nights does what they do best, they try to put you almost in like a movie setting. I understand that a lot of their intellectual property nowadays is not movies, it's original IP, but they try to make an environment in the house where you're the victim of Jason Voorhees or Freddy Krueger or whatever. And, you know, hats off to them because they do the, you know, a darn perfect job at it. They do a great job. But I don't think that the two products are are comparable. You know, that's like... Um, how do we they're not yeah. and and when you're trying to you know when you're drawing from you know coast to coast it's going to be a little bit of a different um you know type guest coming there you know they're coming specifically for that uh, type of thing and when you're relying on more of a local or regional uh you know audience you're not going to have that kind of same you know it's not going to work as well for you so you have to uh, understand you know who your audience is uh, and kind of build your event around that. I agree. And, you know, you, uh, you know, to your point though, um, I would say that, you know, the budget that they have for these houses and they seem to like kind of edge around telling people what they are. Um, it's pretty well accepted. It's well into the millions for each house, but at the same time, you know, when you have a, um, like a stranger things house or whatever, people will get on an airplane and they will fly to Orlando or California to go through that Stranger Things house. It's incredibly marketable for a huge region. While at the same time, you know, the event overall itself is what's marketable for a Fright Fest or a Halloween haunt or Halloween weekends or whatever. Yeah. And you have the other situation too, where, you know, there's year round parks, you know, their, their uh, Halloween events are going to go daily, mm -hmm. you know, for the most part, um, you know, Disney and universal net and it starts, you know, when it does in September and it's all, you know, six weeks and, you know, 30 plus nights and that, and you, you look at the other, you know, the seasonal parks, you know, it's uh, six, seven, eight weeks, weekends, you know, so you're having 12 to 18 nights of this. So it, it's a totally different uh, ball game, not comparable at all. And what, uh, you know, what the two events are. Well, the cool part though is, you know, if, if Universal is going to spend millions of dollars on a lot of the development and stuff, the seasonal parks can pick, can pick and choose what makes sense out of that library, you know, not necessarily copying a house or anything like that, but you know, a lot of, they've got a lot of people absolutely dedicated to just designing one house. You know, there are people right now that are designing a house for next year or even the following year at universal Orlando, you know, and they think about these things. They have time to think about every single little turn. So I think that that yeah, almost but... um, in a good way moves the industry forward the Halloween industry because they came come up with the ideas that nobody else thinks of. And then, you know, hopefully they can take it and market it at trans world or in different conventions like that. Um, and then the regional parks can, can pick and choose out of that sort of stuff as to what, you know, makes financial sense and sense with their storyline and their demographic and so on. So I think that's, I think it's a good thing personally, don't you? 
Yeah, I think so. Because I, I would say that the, the contrary would be that uh, Mickey's Not So Scary is, you know, it's it's a, it's a nighttime event, but it's the same thing as the daytime stuff at other parks. Um, and that's sitting on a completely different shelf. So that's something you could aspire, aspire to, but it's it's almost, you can compare them though. You know, I, I think that that's... Yeah, but you look at those two uh, parks, not that far mm-hmm. apart, you know, from each other, totally different type of events, but also just look at, you know, again, the audience, the crowd, go to Universal, you know, one day on a Tuesday, go to Disney, you know, Magic Kingdom or something on a Wednesday, and you're going to see a totally different... Uh, you know, audience going to those places. So, you know, if you're Disney, you could not do, uh, you know, what Universal oh, does. No. And if you're Universal, you could not do what Disney does. So, I mean, it's, you got to be who you are. Yeah. And it's, it's funny what a, um, I'm trying to look for my wording here. Uh, coexistence. That's the word I'm looking for. It's funny what a coexistence they have because they could not be more different when it comes to, especially Halloween, you know, and it's, um, even like almost everything really. But I guess that's, you know, when two companies that are essentially similar, you know, and, and I'm talking about like a very macroscopic thing because you can split hairs and talk about how different they are. But, you know, uh, Mickey Mickey does not, or Mickey, Walt Disney World does, uh, Mickey's not so scary. And that is completely different from Horror Nights, com- polar opposite. Uh, they also do um, Christmas really well. And, and, uh, Universal doesn't really worry about Christmas. It seems like I know they have a Christmas event, but it's not as well known or promoted as the other one. But on the other hand, um, they have Mardi Gras and Disney doesn't touch that, you know? So it's, yeah, again, two different audiences going to those parks for the most part. And, uh, you know, when you've got young kids in that, you're going to be more inclined to, you know, want to do, uh, you know, Mickey's not so scary Halloween and the Christmas event there, you get older, you know, you have teenage kids now, you know, 16, 17, 18 years old. They're going to be more interested maybe in, in going through, uh, you know, the, the mazes and things that Universal has during Halloween season. So it's just really, I mean, it's just understanding, you know, um, you know, your market, who your audience is. And, uh, you know, you create your event around that. And I think, you know, Universal is known for a long time here they are, so you don't see too much change with it. Uh, a lot of these other parks, you know, the seasonal parks around the country, you know, they've evolved and, uh, you know, their events are, you know, now tailored to, to really what, uh, what works best. Yeah, absolutely. And, and it's funny because, uh, you know, to add a third dimension to it, they've got, um, both Hallow's Scream at Tampa, Busch Gardens, Tampa. And, uh, I don't, I don't know if they're calling it Hallow's Scream at, at SeaWorld as well, but that's more in line with like seasonal parks. It's the haunted house, jump out, boo kind of stuff. Um, mm-hmm. and, and it's funny because you and I both have a lot of friends that live in Orlando, you know, and it's, uh, when you, when, when I go down there, the parks that I want to visit are Disney and universal and stuff that offer a completely different experience from what I'm used to, but they're, they're always like, oh man, I can't wait to get back to Bush gardens, Tampa. And for me, Bush gardens, Tampa is, uh, it's a wonderful park, but it's a really nice Kings Island, you know? Um, so, you know, they, they want to go and they want to ride the roller coaster and stuff. Cause that's not, not what they're used to. But for me, I want to go down there and I want to ride a bunch of dark rides and stuff. Cause that's not what I'm used to, you know, but, um, but you know, co- coming around with that, you know, uh, universal has their super scary event. Disney has their, um, you know, kid friendly event. Both are on, let's say they're both polar opposites on the magical side. And then SeaWorld has their event, which is the more jump scare boo kind of thing. So it's, that's a whole third prong in knowing your audience and knowing who you're marketing to. Mm-hmm. So it took some really smart people to figure out that there's a spot for SeaWorld in this, but it appears that there is. Yeah. And there's a spot for, you know, every, every, um, you know, park out there in the attractions industry that, uh, you know, there's something that's going to fit, you know, who you are, you know, as a, as a brand and who's, you know, typically coming to your, your park, you know, throughout the spring, summer you know, maybe even the winter, you know, so you kind of work with that. And, and that's kind of, um, you know, been kind of the blueprint that you've started to see these events evolve into over the last 10 years. I think technology has played a a fantastic part in this as well. I think you can do such cool things with, with lights and sounds and stuff nowadays, you know, um, you know, like at Kings Island, they've got that thing at midnight, which is the coolest thing ever. You know, I'm super excited to see that again this weekend. 
Um, but that lends to telling a story. There's a story told throughout the night, and I, to, that means so much to me uh, to know that that's like the effort put into it. You know, um, and I'm not going to describe what it is. You're just going to have to go out to the park and be there at midnight and close and see what happens beyond I Street. You know, that's what you told me, and I had experienced it for myself. You know, um, yeah, exactly. And it's like I said, there's all those different, uh, you know, fun things. It doesn't always have to be, you know, the, uh, you know, a real intense, you know, blood, terror, gore type of event to, to work and be a lot of fun and something you want to do over and over again. Yeah, I mean, like, because Halloween can be several different things and, and not all are appropriate from all demographics because Halloween is scary. Halloween is, I wouldn't necessarily say angry. Let's, let's take that out because that's, that's not a factor in this. It's definitely sexual in some cases. Um, it's passion is a big part. Wow. was a big part. I mean, if you play off of any of those kind of emotions or pseudo emotions, um, you can really come up with some great ideas. You know, you do things with spotlights and lasers and, you know, things like that. It's really cool. Um, yeah, a couple of years ago before, um, you know, before COVID, you know, I went to a park that had a really nice Halloween, you know, and I was telling, you know, some of my friends about it, you know, they go to all these different parks and they were like, well, why would you go there? They don't have any mazes or anything. You know, I did, it didn't have to, you know, it was, um, you know, the, it was all about the like the decor, the food and those kind of things. And, you know, just just a fantastic, you know, fall event. And, uh, you know, so you were able to do it that way, too, without having to go to that degree, you know, with all the scare. Yeah, and, and I think that would be tantamount to saying me and my family went to the pumpkin patch on Saturday afternoon and them saying, did Jason Voorhees attack you? And it's like, no, that's that's not the same Halloween. That's a different end of that's when it gets dark, you know. I completely yeah. agree. And I think that, um, I mean, we should talk about like the food aspect of, of Halloween, you know, because up until a few years ago, it was about candy. It's not about candy anymore. You know, uh, so many parks. No, have no. It's all the sweet and savory. Sweet and sa- exactly. Like a lot of the, um, I noticed a lot of parks are going the direction of like pastries and stuff. So it's not individually wrapped candy as traditionally associated with Halloween. Uh, but full food items that are just associated with fall and the harvest. I think that's really cool. Where do you think that evolution came from? It is. You know, I just think it evolves from what you're doing, you know, in the spring and summer months, you know, where you've, uh, the, the, you know, the culinary experience at, uh, at parks throughout the country, you know, it's really, really come a long way from just, you know, hot dogs, hamburgers, chicken tenders, you know, so now uh, you're getting all these uh, different types of things. But, uh, you know, you, you just look at all the, uh, like you said, the pastries, uh, you know, that, that all these parks are doing and, you know, it's one of those things where you go to these events now and you're driving home, you know, five, six, seven, ten years ago, you're talking about the maze you went through or maybe those night rides. Well, now you're talking about, you know, those treats and things that you had, you know, the the, the cookie that you got at this place or the cupcake or, um, you know, the brownies, whatever it might be. And you're, you're talking about those items as much as you are the different things you experienced, uh, you know that you would have really raved about going home. But now, now food has a place in that same conversation. I completely agree. You know, and I, I would make the argument that if you are an operator of a slightly smaller than medium to large size park, and you can't say that food is an attraction, you're three years behind the times because every other park that that is having successful runs um, and is showing growth and stuff is, uh, is using food as an attraction. Uh, I would, I would bet, I would say I'm probably correct. 75% of the time, you know, you can sell tickets by selling food and it's a win-win, you know, I mean, even like I mentioned this on a previous podcast, you know, I went to, uh, Bush Gardens Williamsburg over the summer and we bought the meal plan just out of convenience and the, the food just from around the countries and stuff was an attraction. And that's what we remember most, you know? Yeah. And let's talk about those meal plans. You know, Ryan, when I was really getting involved with the industry as a, as a pass holder, no park had a dining plan. No park had anything other than, you know, well, Bush had, you know, some of its own, Bush had its own, uh, you know, different types of menus, you know, with the Italian right. and different things that you go around there. But for the most part, the parks I was visiting, you know, hot dogs, hamburgers, chicken tenders, pizza, you know, good, but a typical theme park food at that time. And now I look at it. And I'm like, I really wish 
that there was a dining plan when I had season passes to like eight different parks, right. you know, at the same time. And I, w- I would have had a dining plan for each one and I would have gone looking, uh, you know, I would have been as excited about the food that I was going to experience during the Halloween season at these places mm-hmm. uh, as I would the, the mazes or getting those night rides in. And, uh, you know, I, I always think that the, the pass holders today, they have no idea across the industry you know, how good you have it compared to what it was like, you know, in the, in the 80s when passes were really, you know, just coming into vogue right. there. Yeah. And I think you have to be about my age to, to fully understand because I was fully vested in the parks both before and after. So I was around, I, I mean, I've had a season pass to, you know, a, a, at least one park for 30 years now, but I would say that I got heavily involved around 2002, 2003. So there was um, some weird fringe benefits uh, to having a season pass, but there were no meal plans and stuff. That was like a 2014, 2015 kind of thing industry wide. Um, but let me say, let me say this, you know, to back up what I was saying, you mentioned meal plans, but uh, you know, with, with food being an attraction, I mean, tell me you've ever been mad about paying the 25 or $30 to eat at aunt granny's, you know, when, when food <laughs> is an attraction, you get you, your money's you, worth you out of mind. it, you know, it doesn't matter. You know, but one thing I'm a big proponent of is the tasting cards. Um, I really like those. I know that Dollywood's doing them um, uh, for the, for a lot of their festivals and a bunch of the Cedar Fair parks and stuff. Uh, but I really like having the samples and being able to try a bunch of things and then even going back for seconds because I'm a fat kid. But, um, <laughs> but I, I th- well, uh, you know, Ryan, if I was a pass holder today, I'd be doing the same thing when I was going to these parks. I'd be buying all the, you know, the dining plans I'd be getting, you know, and I do when I go to uh, the different places, I still, you know, look, that's one of the first things I look for. Do they have a dining plan? You know, and mm-hmm. especially in the fall, you know, the, during the, the, the holiday season, you know, Christmas, I want to see, you know, what, what the, uh, you know, seasonal food, you know, what's on the menu there. Mm-hmm. And then the second question is, do they have a dining plan? Because uh, I'm going to take full advantage of that if they do. I, I completely agree. You know, and when it comes to like uh, season pass add-ons and stuff, you know, when you've got a home park, a lot of it's self-evident. You know, you're going to get the dining plan. You're going to get the drink plan. You're going to get the picture plan. You know, all that stuff. That's, you know. But for a park that, I mean, I've got a park that I'm a season pass holder to that I live about four hours from that I do about three, three trips to a year. And even at that, I bought some add-ons because it came down to thinking about like, well, what makes sense for me? You know? So like, well, the drink plan, I mean, I'm not going to use that every day, but it is convenient to be able to just grab a drink, you know, even if it, even if it doesn't financially make sense every time the, the convenience of it, same with like, you know, even the meal plans in some cases, I don't have to fumble around with scanning my credit card or whatever, you know, you just assume you're going to break even at, at the least. Most of the times you come out ahead, you know? Yeah. Well, Ryan, circling back to the Halloween season, you particularly, what, um, you know, we talked about, there's the real intense, uh, you know, Halloween events. There's the, the hybrid, you know, the best of both worlds, you know, uh, fun by day, fright by night type of type of events. There is just the family events. And, uh, you know, then there's the ones that's kind of a, a blend mm-hmm. of both. Uh, so for you personally, what do you like the best? That's a good question. There are elements of all of it that I like. Um, if I had to narrow it down and pick one, though, um, definitely nighttime stuff. I love parks at night in general. Um, if you had asked me this question like 10 years ago, I would have said the most, the more extreme, the better. Uh, nowadays, it's kind of like I love the storytelling aspect, as I mentioned. You know, so if you've got shows or houses or whatever that tell a really good story, I, I'll really appreciate that. Um, so I would say that the narrative, the, the things that have the narrative are the things that I like the best. Um, it doesn't have to be super shocking and it doesn't necessarily have to be non-offensive or benign or anything like that. Um, but if you have that element, that's what's, that's, what's going to excite me. What are your thoughts on that? Well, you know, um, I would have been more about the, the intense scares, but, uh, you know, then when you have, um, you know, kids, and you're going to these events uh, or parks with them, you know, that changes to what you're looking for. Uh, so for me, um, I kind of like that blend where it's, um, you know, it touches on, you know, there are scary elements to it. The atmosphere is great. The food is great. And uh, you get to ride all your favorite rides at night. That's the kind of event that I like. It's, is where it kind of touches a little bit of everything, 
Uh, it's not focused heavily on one thing or the other, but uh, there's a little bit of everything and it works for everybody in my family when we go to those events. I'd say that's fair. You know, I mean, and, and especially, um, you know, when it comes to the daytime trick-or-treating and stuff, that's something adults and kids can kind of enjoy together without risking, you know, giving grandma coronary or, or anything like that, obviously. Um, so in, in your experience, Don, what would you say makes a successful Halloween show? And let me, let me, um, let me, let me pad this question a little bit. Um, because there have been a lot of shows out there. Um, you know, Bill and Ted at Universal ran for 20 years or so. Um, so that had its own legacy and that was an attraction in itself. Um, and then there have been other ones where it's singing and dancing. There's been live bands, there's been circus stuff. There's been, um, you know, the, the stomp style thing, people beating on stuff, as I call it show, uh, has been pretty widespread throughout the industry. What do you think makes a successful show in terms of not a one and done, but you can bring it back the, you know, the next year and possibly in the future after that? Well, I think, you know, we touched on earlier, you want to see a storytelling component to it. You know, that that's, that's what, uh, you know, I think makes a good show is that there is a story to it. You can follow that story. And then after you watch the show, it's something that you want to come back and watch again. And if you're going to watch it that second, third, fourth time, you know, then you have a winner on your hand uh, with that. But I think storytelling goes just, you know, such a long way, especially, uh, you know, at this time of the year with the Halloween events, uh, instead of like you said, just, you know, banging on things and doing that, uh, uh, you know, when, when there's a story, it just really enhances, enhances that show. Yeah. You know, I, I, I agree with that. And I would also add that having, um, a little bit more dimensions to the show. Even um, the storytelling, I would say, is absolutely king. That's number one, no, no doubt. Um, but you know, a- adding different elements to the show, like I've noticed that recently, um, you know, throughout the industry, the really successful because it seems like there's more being more money being put into shows um, uh, nationwide, from what I've observed. But it seems like the ones that really keep the audience's attention are not just a you know, a half pipe with a bunch of bikers on it or singing and dancing or whatever. It's a mixture of all of them. So nothing really gets old. Yeah. And I like the, um, you know, the, the makeup too, you know, what the, you know, whether they're singers, dancers, whatever in the show, you know, that, that they're, uh, you know, dressed up for the Halloween season as well. Uh, you know, a few weeks ago I had a chance to um, check out hollow weekends at Cedar mm-hmm. point and there was a show called the shrieks. Yep. Now, you know, costumes great. Uh, the music was great. Um, stage looked great. But to me, what made that show was I was really, really impressed. Uh, you know, with the lighting. Mm-hmm. You know, the lighting package that they put into it. Sounding more and like I me every that day. Just, <laughs> that just really added so much to that show. So if you're going to Cedar Point, be sure to check out the Shrieks. But uh, you know, just things like that. It makes just a huge difference than just your typical, you know, singing and dancing type show when there is that lighting package oh, yeah. to it. Oh, well, and, and, and the storytelling. Uh, you know, special effects and things you know, like that. You know, I mean, it's yeah, like, a, exactly. let's pick on Cedar Point a little bit more. Uh, Midnight Syndicate. I, I'd always heard, that, oh, it's a really good show and stuff. Uh, me and my girlfriend went there and we watched the show just somewhere to sit down. And she's not as, as into shows as I am, but... You know, I talked her into it and we sat down and, it, you know, they started doing their electrica thing. And it's like, OK, cool. We get to sit here in the air conditioning for, you know, 25 minutes or whatever. And then, like, the lights dimmed and, like, there was a seance. And like it was so cool. I remember my mind being blown by that show. It was so much more than I expected it to be. And that that is yeah. a perfect example of taking what could have been a pretty good show and making it a great show through storytelling. Yeah. And it's the 25th anniversary for that Rightfully show so. and uh, 25 you know, years, the main character. Yeah. So you're going to come back and they, you know, do different you know, things with it. it's not the same show every single year uh, with especially this year with the 25th. It kind of, you know, plays back. If, if you've watched the, that show, you know, over the years, you see how it all kind of comes together this year. So I'm not going to, you know, give it all away there. But, uh, you know, but those characters, you know, mm-hmm. that are in that show, they're recognizable by the guest and they incorporate them in different parts of that event throughout the night, you know, kind of the, uh, the opening ceremony on that. And it just really adds to it that, uh, you know, you've got these characters from that show and, you know, people recognize them and, and, uh, you know, they get excited to see them, you know, outside of the, the theater doors, you know, as they do just sitting in the audience watching. How much do you think that, um, an opening ceremony, 
adds to the important, I mean, uh, like not necessarily added value from a marketing standpoint, but from the ambiance and stuff, do you think that it's really important to have an opening ceremony? Cause it seems like some do and some don't. I think it adds, you know, it enhances, uh, the experience for you. It's a, it's a kind of the official start of the event instead of just opening the gates and go, you know, it kind of gives you that, um, you know, here's the, the launch of, of my evening, you know, my night of fright. Yeah, I completely agree. Um, some people tie it into their storytelling and I'm not going to tell you where to be at midnight this Friday and Saturday, but being there for opening is very important for that storytelling element. Um, Okay. Well, do you have any final thoughts on this before we go? We got a couple questions from Twitter. Yeah. Yeah. I was going to say, I, you know, we had that Twitter question out there. Uh, you know, so what do we have, Ryan? Well, we have some Twitter questions. You know what, Don? You know what we forgot to mention at the top of the show? We hit 100 Twitter followers, speaking of Twitter, and we're going to give away something tonight, but you have to stay to the end of the show to figure that out. Okay. So from Twitter. So, uh, Andrew Sitwell, so this is at, I'm sorry, Stillwell. I I apologize, Andrew. Uh, And this is at Stillwell. He says, feels like there's a lot of the same types of mazes and experiences at theme parks. Corn mazes, circus clowns, butcher shop, medical facility, etc. Is there a horror slash haunted trope, either IP or not, that you think hasn't been effectively explored in a theme park setting? Great First thing question. that comes to mind from what, yeah, yeah, great question. First thing that comes to mind to me is, uh, you know, maybe you look towards sports a bit. Mm-hmm. That was exactly what I was like thinking. something like that. Um, when Kings Island announced Field of Screams, uh, oh God, it was probably 10 years ago at this point, I assumed it was going to be one of those mazes where you go through and in each room, each sport is represented. But just imagine that, like you can have, I mean, and, and you can do it well. It doesn't have to be cliche. So you can have, you know, people with baseball bats in one room and, you know, I, what I would do, uh, I was thinking about a football room. I think it would imagine this, Don, this is probably your fantasy, but this would be scary for everybody else. But you, you enter a room and you have six, say six scare actors that are at least as tall as me, like six foot one, six feet tall or whatever. They surround you and they're, you know, not, not touching you obviously, but they're surrounding you wearing all their pads and stuff, maybe even blown up a little bit. And in the corner, you got a coach that's yelling at you, telling you're a maggot and to get back on the field and stuff. And you have to work your way through them. Um, and then, you know, you can have some like fun tongue in cheek things with golf or whatever. Um, but I, I think that a sports theme maze would be really cool. It could be funny. It could be scary. Um, it could be, you know, anything else because sports are so benign. They're not scary, but if you make them scary, then that's an IP or not really an IP, but that's a subject matter that you haven't explored yet. You know, can you think of anything else? Yeah. I mean, you know, not off the top of my head. I mean, that was just such a great question. You'd really have to look and, you know, understand what, what already is out there and then, you know, what hasn't uh, been done, but, uh, you know, really appreciate that question. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that a lot of the stuff that um, Andrew mentioned, a lot of it's low hanging fruit, Uh, as I mentioned, you're going to have corn because of the harvest People, a lot of people are scared of clowns. So you're going to have clowns, you know, darkness, yeah, all that stuff. That's going to be done. Okay, cool. So next question, and this is from our friend uh, Jim Flugel, at Jim Flugel. He says, when deciding a new haunted house project, how much time and planning goes into the decision process? And what types of groups are involved in making this house a reality? Great question, Jim. I think that, uh, you know, people would be surprised how how far in advance you start to think about these things. Uh, You know, you had mentioned the Hotel St. Michelle at Kings Mm -hmm. Island, Um, you know, late December, early January, you know, that uh, concept started to be developed. So, you know, you can go, what is it now? 10, you know, nine nine months before it opens. So, I mean, nine to 10 months uh, for something like that. Um, But it can be as far back as two to three years, you know, you're thinking about, you know, what's going to go in this building in the future. You're going to build a new location somewhere. Um, so, yeah, I would say, you know, anywhere from 10 months to, to two to three years, you're thinking about this depending on uh, the level of your event. What about live shows? I think, you know, you're you're pretty much going to be in that same boat where you're, you're going to be talking about, um, you know, a year out. You know, what are you going to do there? You know, you always know, you know, when you're, you have a show, you know whether it's coming back the next year you have to replace it so you already have concepts in mind if you're going to replace it you better have something ready to right. go 
Um, so, so it's, it's always going to be a year plus on, on the entertainment part of it. So would you argue, uh, and this is construing your words a little bit, but so October of 2022, you've got a decent idea of what's going in that venue in October of 2023, um, with serious planning starting maybe in December or so. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. You're looking at that. We, you know, you know, that event or that maze is going to come back or that show is going to come back. Uh, if it's not going to, you know, the wheels are turning, you know, they're, they're, you're already working on it. Um, you're thinking about, uh, you know, what you would need in each each room, you know, and uh, you go from there. Yeah. I mean, I've, I've always been intrigued by that. Uh, I think that um, obviously, you know, my observation has been that as far as casts are concerned for both haunted houses and um, for shows, that's a lot of returners. Um, you'll see the same people in the shows during October that you do. Um, during the summer in a lot of cases, at least to fill the gaps. Um, and then you do. And there, and there, yeah, I can tell you too, Ryan, there are times, you know, where, where parks, you know, you're thinking about the show that you want to do, but you have to have, you know, somebody in mind that's going to already play those roles right? Uh, to make it work. Yeah. 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 And I would say, especially if it's locally produced or whatever. And I've noticed that at least locally, um, a lot of times the lead performer of shows has been from somewhere else in the country. So maybe they wrote the show around somebody, you know, I, I think that's entirely possible. Um, yeah. I mean, that, that's, that's a really good question, Jim. I, that's, that's very interesting. Um, and, and also uh, let's not forget this, Don, um, you know, fire and safety makes a huge impact in these mazes because they've got a huge veto on this stuff, you know? So I would say that with, with planning, probably 45% is creative and then the rest is all fire and safety. What can we get through? Can we get people through safely? If there's a fire, can we get them out? You know, if somebody has some sort of medical incident, can we get them out quickly? That sort of stuff too. Huge factor. That is a great point. Huge factor. And a great point. And when somebody, you know, they'll, they'll bring up, went through this, you know, corn maze, you know, and, and it would have been great, but they had this one little opening here and I could see outside of the corn right. maze. Well, you have to, because like things you just mentioned. So there's so much involved with that. Uh, you know, thinking of every scenario, of uh, if something happened in this room, what do we do? And you have to think about that before, you know, you keep moving forward and have a plan for that situation. And the costs involved are so much more than you would ever imagine sometimes. So for example, um, I know that there's there's a certain maze I went through that's in like a really tall building. And, you know, I heard people saying like, oh, man, if they just put a top on it so you couldn't see all the way up, then it would be so much better. But if you put a if you put a lid on, if you put a roof on, it means you got to have a sprinkler system, which means you're probably going to rent a sprinkler system. And I've been told that renting a sprinkler system for the month of October is like forty thousand dollars. So in the grand scheme of budgets, that's not terrible, but why would you spend that when you can put it into creative or staffing or security or, or food service, you know, anywhere else, you know? So a lot of the times it just, you know, you're Ryan, there's always those, yeah, there's always those, you know, that, that you'll see, you know, especially in, in the world I live in and, you know, monitoring and, you know, with social media, right. you know, should have done this, should have done that. They should have this, they should have that. Uh, you know, you can't have everything. Where would you put it? Yeah, exactly. I mean, I, I've got the space for it, but maybe you don't since you're in a closet right now. But um, <laughs> for, for those of you watching at home, Don's Don's recording in a closet right now. Um, I'm in a storage room. This is my studio. This, this is, is your the studio. best I got. Okay. We're going to get a real studio someday, Don. We're not going to record over Skype or in a church. <laughs> anyway, uh, so I've got another really, really good question that I'm surprised we didn't kind of touch on. Uh, during our, uh, our you know our initial conversation, this is from Coaster Team on Twitter, and he says, "In the idea of entry prices, are there benefits slash drawbacks to having a separate ticket rather than something that is more of a combined ticket? For example, Halloween Horror Nights Universal would be a separately ticketed event." So I'm going to expand on his question because Carowinds, for example, you do get in with your season pass, but they do flush out the park, you know, for an hour. So I think that the, the answer to his question is obvious. You know, you're, you're bringing in specific people that'll pay a specific price and you can do a better event, but it's for less people and you can't necessarily offer it to season pass. And I think that's pretty obvious. So let's go with the more difficult question. Let's say your alternative is you flush out the park for an hour and then you bring in people that know that they're getting into a Halloween situation, but it's open to season passes, kind of like Scarewinds. 
what are the benefits and drawbacks to that compared to the way that a lot of parks do it, where it's just a transition at a certain time? Well, I think it's going to be different for everybody. I don't think there's a right way to do it, a wrong way to do it. You know, everybody, uh, you know, got a different, uh, you know, situation and, w- and what's going to work best for them. You know, you talked about Universal. It's a destination place. You're going to sell a lot of tickets in advance, you know, six, seven, eight months out. Mm-hmm. You know, people are planning their trips there for that. So it's it's going to work for them to do it that way. Um, you know, a lot of the seasonal parks, it's not going to work that way for them. Right. You know, if you have a really big season pass space, it's probably not going to work as well yeah. for you um, with that. Um, you know, but then, you know, if you have different rides, you know, you have to be able to, um, you know, so say you're on, on a Saturday, you're open, you know, and you're trying to clear the house at four or five. But if you would have to cut the line sometimes at two or three o'clock right. in the afternoon yep, to have everybody. Yeah. And then, you know, that doesn't give everybody in the daytime uh, much opportunity to experience the park. So you have to be thinking about all those kind of mm-hmm. things uh, before you would make that decision on whether you're a separate gate or it's just, uh, you know, an all day thing, you know, that your admission includes the full day. You know, so I, I just think you have to understand, um, you know, again, you know, who your audience, where you're drawing from. Uh, what the experience would be if you had to, you know, middle of the day or early evening, you know, cut it off and get everybody out of there, you know, how are you going to do that? And, uh, you know, if you've got uh, attractions that, you know, on, on a on a Saturday that, you know, it's typically going to have a, a 45 minute to an hour and 15 minute wait, um, as most parks do, mm-hmm. you know, you're cutting that line at 2.30, 3 o'clock in the afternoon, you know, no one else can get in line. So it's not always the best experience there. And so you you really want to just, uh, you know, just, uh, just look at each part on a case by case basis on how that's going to work. Where's where the guests coming from, you know, is it, uh, you know, it's a destination place like universal or most of them coming from within, you know, 45 minutes of the park that day. Yeah. Yeah. And and I think that there's going to be out because I feel like daytime people are not nighttime people. And uh, it's very evident by the fact that the line to get out is just as long as the line to get in at six o'clock. Um, but um, and here's something else for you, Ryan. Yeah. A lot of those, a lot of the people that I've talked to that have said, "I'd love to see a, a separate gate here for this." Well, they're going to be there in the morning. They're just going to walk outside the gate and wait to walk right back in. They're going to still spend the full day there. So why not just leave them all in there the whole day? Yeah, I mean, I, I guess that they're they're looking for the benefits of the separate gate, which is. Fine, but I don't think that I think that'd be one of those things that wouldn't go over very well if you haven't always done it that way. Um, I, I used to room hard to change mid course, right? So I used to to have a roommate that was uh, like a, a ride supervisor, and one of his responsibilities was to close the kitty area at six o'clock or whatever. And uh, you know, despite the fact that there are signs everywhere, parents were always like, "What do you mean the kids area closes at six? The park's open till one a.m." You know, so. There's no, first of all, there's no effective way to communicate something out to everybody because I bet half of those people are sincere and just not knowing and being surprised and being upset and maybe, maybe rightfully so. And then the other half are just like, they want to say something, you know, but just imagine that, but park wide. What do you mean? I can't ride right. the, the shooting star or whatever. The park's open till mid, you know, I, I could just see yeah. it. What, what I can tell you though, Ryan, is every park out there. I mean, there's a lot of smart people that work at all these parks and, uh, you know, they think of everything and, you know, there's a reason why some parks have the separate gate and there's reasons why other parks don't. And that's because that's, what's going to work best in that particular market right. and for that particular park. Yeah. Especially if it's a separately ticket event, uh, a friend of mine that works for universal said that from a business standpoint, they see it as two days for the price of one. Because, you know, I mean, all the Florida parks are busy all the time now. So they'll draw tens of thousands of people. It'll go down to zero for two hours. Then they'll draw tens of thousands of people again at six or seven o'clock. You know, so, I mean, from a business standpoint, it might make sense. But you're right. Why Why would you switch at this point? I mean, if, if there was an issue with commingling on Saturdays where you were getting just tons of complaints... Yeah, my kid's five years old. He was here for the costume contest. Now he has Freddy Krueger chasing him. Like, I, I, I could understand why that conversation would come up. But at the same time, 
there's got to be a line where the parents have to be responsible and just be like, oh, wait a minute, maybe now it's not appropriate for my kids here, you know. And again, it comes down to the park communicating out that, you know, after six or seven o'clock, it's it's kind of changed. So, Don, if you were going to have like a, let's say like a Bucky's themed haunted house. Yeah. What, what, what elements would you have in there? <laughs> uh, gosh, uh, you know. I, I think you would just have, you know, um, you would have a lot of terrifying beavers everywhere. Yeah. And then instead, you know, like when you go through those rooms where it has the hanging bodies that you got to push yourself through, it's just giant, um, uh, raw, not raw high. What word am I looking for? The the dried beef stuff. Um, oh, yeah. I know what you're talking about. Yeah. I, I can't think of what it's called. Uh, I'm losing. I'm sure the people listening to this podcast are, are going insane. Um <laughs> We just lost everybody talking about a Bucky's theme. Yeah, and then, but you know what? It could be done. Have Bucky the Beaver at the very end, you know, come and attack you and chase you out. Uh, If you had a haunted house in a Bucky's, it would take like an hour to get through it with how big they are. I remember when I worked at Best Buy when I was in college. I I remember thinking how cool it would be to turn the whole building because I worked in a particularly large one. How cool it would be to turn that whole building into a, a haunted house? You know? Yeah, I when I worked at Cincinnati Gardens. I always wanted to do in the fall Halloween event in the annex building. Mm-hmm. I thought that could be a perfect, you know, walk through attraction. It's a way to, um, you know, cause at the time, you know, you only had the 40, you know, 45 dates for the hockey team. So what can we do to, to have this building draw more people here? And I thought for a six week type of event that could be, you know, really well done. So yeah, you always think about different things like that when, you work different places like what if we could do this here or there yeah i do that in my office building now like you know we're close at night yeah <laughs> awesome cool well don any final thoughts on the halloween season you know no more on the halloween season but uh you know you mentioned twitter we're over 120 followers now we did talk several weeks ago when we first launched this podcast that once we got to 100 we would um start to give away so i have in my uh treasure trove of part memorabilia mm-hmm. uh one of the things i've seen a lot of people talking about lately was a book called goodbye coney island yep. goodbye I got my copy here um i happen <laughs> you have yours there that you got i had mine uh a woman uh named ruth boss perhaps a lot of people listening to our podcast have heard of her she was the former pr manager at king's island in the 1980s Legend. but uh this was in a box in my in my um my garage and uh you know i've been kind of uh looking to uh you know clean it up a little bit and uh you know i can't take all this stuff with me so i got to start giving it to to other people maybe but um ryan if you want to scroll through twitter let's randomly select someone and uh give them this prize okay all right so just uh let me let me get to the right spot here so I'm guessing we're going to give it away to somebody who's following us, not somebody we're following, because that would be a little counterproductive. Following, following us. us. Okay. Following us. Yeah, you had. To, yeah, that was the rule we talked about. You can go back and listen yeah. to the podcast. So, you had to be following us to be eligible to win. And again, the first prize, it's a good one. Not all the things that we're going to give away here are Kings Island. I've got stuff from parks throughout the country. Yeah, and space. Don, if you want to, I mean, I guess we'll communicate with the person who wins, but if you want to maybe give a little bit of words of wisdom on the last page of the book or something and sign it or something like that. You can, I don't want to devalue it. I don't want to devalue it. So I'm not going to sign it. All right. Well then just put a personal check for like five bucks in it. Oh wait, that'd probably be worth less than the book. Okay. Let's do this. So we're scrolling through. Now remember you can see this, but I can't because we're on camera. I, all I can see. Okay. Now it's moving. Let's scroll through a little bit and put your finger this on person. Scroll up and down. Who'd you, who'd you pick? Okay. So I've got, Caleb Fry at Coaster Caffeine. Uh, and his description is caffeine and coasters. Same, Caleb. Same. Caleb, we are going to send you a private message on Twitter uh, to talk about uh, corresponding to uh, get you this prize. But congratulations for being our very first giveaway winner. Caleb Fry at Caf- Coaster Caffeine. Awesome. Yeah. So we want there to be value in following us other than just knowing what the next podcast is and that. So there will be some different things where we're giving away items. We'll start to do some tri- trivia type things for about the industry. I, I want to go live so on YouTube and have it, a so. like extravaganza at some point, give away 10 or 12 items in an hour. What do you think about that? Yeah, why not? That oh, could be our trivia. Why not? You know, 
Awesome. You can hey the, hey, the red season's over. I got all the time in the world now in the evening for us to do these kind of things, right? Ladies and gentlemen, I want you to know that Don sacrificed going to the last Reds game of the season where they could have clenched a playoff spot if there was some sort of mass tragedy and a lot of the other teams got hurt and were unable to participate. The Reds are not going to make the playoffs. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, tonight was the last Reds game. Don decided not to go to that to record this podcast. So thank you, Don, for doing that. Awesome. Cool. Well, no, again, no problem. make sure that uh, if you aren't yet, follow us at attractions underscore GRP. Follow us on um, you know your favorite podcast app. Just look for the Attractions Group Podcast and uh, search for the Attractions Group Podcast on YouTube so you can join in all the fun. So, Don, this has been a fun one. It has been. Uh, we've got some, you know, guests coming up over the next, uh, you know, several weeks too that uh, we think everyone's going to really enjoy those conversations. Tom Rebbe from the Philadelphia Toboggans Coasters Incorporated. Uh, John Keeter, who has put together a coffee table book of uh, 50 years of history at Kings Island. You're going to love that uh, book when it comes so out. I am so excited for that book. I've been, I heard about yeah. it in April and I was told it was coming out in, in two weeks. And this has been the longest two weeks of my life. Yeah, but we got a full lineup, uh, you know, and then we're going to be heading to IAPA in November, mm-hmm. and uh, we'll be uh, lining up a bunch of, um, you know, interviews and things there. And, uh, you know, it's just going to continue to grow here on this channel. And, you know, we're glad that those of you that listen, those of you that follow us on Twitter, you know, we're glad to have you. And, uh, you know, it's going to be a lot of fun coming down the road, a lot of uh, interesting uh, people that you're going to hear from from the attractions industry. Yeah, I agree. And if you guys see us on the IAPA floor and you can't miss us because we're going to be the only two jerks wearing Hawaiian shirts, come up and say hi. By all means, we'd love to, to meet you because we we do this so people will listen to it. So we're as honored, probably more honored to meet you than you are to meet us. So yeah, awesome. Cool. Well, we will see you next week. We'll have another excellent episode of the Attractions Group podcast. Thank you for listening. <laughs>